0: All right. A couple of announcements just to remind you about. On Saturday morning, we're going to have the candidate meet and greet with Fred Shukart and Tom Oliverson. And like I keep saying, this is a great time to learn a lot about civics, local civics, what's going on in our county and in our state. So I encourage you to be here. I learned the other night from someone in the audience that there were 44,000 cases in a backlog uh, for the courts in Harris County. I went home to check it. It's not true. According to the county district attorney's office, it's 135,000 cases backlogged. 135,000. We ought to be appalled. Why aren't we demonstrating and marching on City Hall? That's just hyperbole. But we ought to be raising cane about this. We're releasing murderers with no bail, into the county who are committing second and third murderers while they're out free. And people don't get it. So be here Saturday morning. Uh, I'll be gone to Africa the next uh, two or three weeks. Get back. I'll be back in the pulpit October 2nd. Jim Myers will teach while I'm gone. Uh, Israel tour next June. But we have this evangelism event out at Fort Bend County Fair. And that's coming up uh, not this weekend, but the last a weekend in September. And so talk to um, Jeff Phipps about that, please. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades... But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's make sure we're spiritually prepared for our study this evening. And that means that if necessary, we need to confess sin. That's in silent prayer uh, so that we can um, be restored to fellowship, walking by the Spirit, walking with the Lord. And then uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we have you to come to. We're thankful that we live in a nation that is free, a nation that gives us the freedom to vote. We know that man is not the solution. You're the only solution. But nevertheless, part of the way in which you work is through those who vote. That is an intermediate cause. And Father, we pray that there will be those who understand the truth who will get out and vote. And those that do not will not. And, Father, we know that all things are in your hands to guide and direct this election, but we need leaders who have integrity, and we need leaders who can make correct decisions, and we need uh, we need leaders who can deal uh, with criminality, and we need to be protected. So, Father, we pray that we might find such people and that they will be elected. Father, we also pray for our nation, for leadership at this time when there seems to be no leadership. And we pray that you would provide men and women as a result of this upcoming election who can faithfully guide this nation, that you will minimize corruption, expose corruption, and that you will give us grace in this election. Father, we pray for... This evangelism event at Fort Bend County, we pray that there will be those who are interested and we pray that uh, the gospel will be presented clearly and that many will come go there to be trained to improve their skills at giving people, explaining to people the gospel. Now, Father, we pray that we might be challenged as we study your word this evening, coming to understand what it means to love one another. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, Uh, we are in Philippians, so we are not studying the passage per se, other than in terms of our introduction this evening, but we're looking at the topic of love that comes out of our passage in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is Paul's prayer. He has already expressed his thankfulness to God for the Philippian believers because they are Financially participating in his ministry, contributing to uh, his finances, and so. Excuse me a minute. We have a tech issue. It is green on your screen, and it is closer to the correct color up there. This is this is strange. Sorry, folks, but. What you see on your live stream is not what I create. The colors are getting glitched, and we're testing to see what happens on using another computer, and it's even weirder than what we had been experiencing. So I just have to give them something to do. Uh, Paul prays that your love may abound still more and more. And he uses the word agape, agape, which is used a lot in the New Testament, but it's not that uh, frequent in secular literature. And it is the word that is used to describe God's love for the world, but God's love for believers is a different Greek word. It is the noun of uh, philos love is related in this passage to knowledge and discernment. These are intellectual activities. We don't think want to think of love as an intellectual activity in our culture. We have been taught, and if you go to Webster's Dictionary or Collins Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, it will tell you that love is an emotion. But biblically, love is not an emotion. Biblical love is not an emotion. It is... Uh, God's mental attitude desiring the absolute best for his creatures. Now, the purpose of our love abounding with knowledge and discernment is so that we can approve the things that are excellent and not be... Uh, come under uh, the effects of our own sin nature so that we we can be without blame till the day of Christ. Now, I didn't cover this specifically last time when we went through it, but it then says being filled. Actually, it's a perfect participle, which means the action of this verb uh, precedes uh, the verb that, that comes before. And the verb that becomes before it is... Oh, my. I can't use my pointer either. All right. Um, It's the verb that you may be. You may be is the main verb, and the you may be looks forward to the day of Christ. So what this is saying, at the day of Christ you have already been filled with whatever fruits of righteousness there are going to be, because that's what happens during your life on earth. There's no second chances. That's the implication of the perfect tense here in this particular structure, is that we live our life today, we grow spiritually, we're accountable for that at the judgment seat of Christ, and what we show up with at the judgment seat of Christ are the fruits of righteousness, which are the result of our spiritual growth, our spiritual life during this time on earth. So that is perfect tense there, which means it is done and completed before the judgment seat of Christ. No do-overs, no second chances, no opportunity to uh, make up for lost time. It's, that's in the past. So we're evaluated on that basis. Now, we have to understand what love is. As I pointed out last time, it's one of the most misunderstood concepts by most Christians and by nearly everybody else. What does the Bible teach about love, biblical love? And so we have these uh, passages, I mean, these seven points I was, I, I'm in the middle of summarizing. This gives us a logical order to understand why we study it the way we do and what the Bible is saying. Last week, we looked at the first three points. Point number one is that in John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says that love, the love we have for one another, modeled on Christ's love for us, is the ultimate indication of the fact that we are his disciples, not that we are believers because a person can be a believer and not a disciple. In John 6, there are many dis- many of his disciples left him. So they were just beginning. They had gotten to maybe first grade because a disciple is a student. And then when they found out what was going to be required of them to move on to second grade, they said, "No, nah, that's too much." And so they they left. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, "Why are you guys still here?" And Peter said, because you have words of eternal life. So they they understood it. that the, the person who's a disciple understands that understanding G, what Jesus is teaching, what the New Testament teaches, is more important than anything else in life because it has eternal consequences. So we looked at that the basic command. We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is the... Illustration: Jesus uses of love in Luke ten twenty nine to thirty seven. We looked at th- point three in John three sixteen and Romans five eight that the ultimate example of love is Christ, God's gift of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, to, for, to go to the cross and to die for our sins. And now tonight we'll get to the fourth point, First Corinthians thirteen one through eight, which describes love. And in our passage, point number five, Philippians 1.9 tells us three things about love, which we'll look at again. And point six, Galatians 4.22 informs us that biblical love is the fruit of the Spirit, which means you can't make it up. You can't make yourself do it. It's not a product of your own flesh and energy. It is something that only comes as a result of spiritual growth and walking by the Spirit. And then we'll look at the numerous passages in 1 John that relate love to the thinking and the life of the growing, maturing believer. That's the structure. So John 1, 13 to 34 35 we looked at already. It's a new command. It's new in time and it is an upgrade from the Old Testament command and that we are to love one another as Christ loved us. And that this is how all will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. Then we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is the illustration of love. And this is when the lawyer, the Philistine legal expert on the Mosaic law is going to test Jesus. I think he's asking also a sincere question for him, but he's, because he recognizes Jesus' knowledge. He calls him teacher. So he's not just being somebody, just, he's not simply setting a trap for Jesus he also recognizes that Jesus has some knowledge and is going to give a worthy answer. And so uh, he asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I pointed out that is not talking about how do I get to heaven when I die, but the quality of life now. And that's how inherit eternal life means when it is used about four other times in the Scripture. And so Jesus asks him, notice, he flips it with a question. He's not playing the Bible answer man, which is what too often what many of us want to do when we're talking to unbelievers. We, we tell them what they, what we think they need to know or what they should be asking about rather than asking them questions, which forces them to think through the answers for what they think. So Jesus frequently just ask questions and so he asks the the lawyer and the lawyer goes to uh, old testament passages in deuteronomy and leviticus leviticus 19 uh, 18 uh, which is the second part uh, and deuteronomy the first part you should love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind notice that you love with your mind it is not loving with your emotions and verse 20 and then at the end he says and your neighbor as yourself and Jesus response is you've answered rightly do this and you will live Jesus is not saying do this and you'll have eternal life because eternal life is not based on what we do we are not saved by works we're saved by grace through faith not of works lest any man should boast so that is very important uh, Deuteronomy six five, Le- Leviticus nineteen eight were the two passages that he uh, quoted. And uh, even in the Old Testament, a person was not saved by obeying the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was designed to teach people they could not keep the Mosaic Law, that they were sinners, and that they needed uh, to trust God. Abraham was saved through faith. Genesis. Um, Genesis. 16 or fifteen five that you believe he believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness for excuse me genesis 15 6 so um it was, salvation was always by faith in the messianic promise of a redeemer who would pay the penalty for sins so we learned uh several things from this that are important Neither the Samaritan, the priest, or the Levite knew the Jew who had been mugged on the road to Jericho. You don't have to know somebody personally in order to uh, love them biblically. Second, the recipient of the Samaritans' act of love was part of a culture that was totally hostile to the Samaritans, hated them, would go out of their way to avoid them, walk to the other side of the Jordan on their way up to Galilee to avoid walking through Samaria, they, they despised them. And so the Samaritan, nevertheless, aids, is the only one who aids the uh, Jew that has been uh, mugged on his way to Jericho. Third, the neighbor, in, by definition, is anyone we meet, whether we know them or not and appreciate them or not. Just because they're another human being in the image and likeness of God, we are to treat them in love. Fourth, this means that love is not conditioned on the behavior or the likability or any other positive factor in the person who receives it. They may be unattractive in personality, in lifestyle, in a physical appearance, uh, but we are to love them because they're still in the image and likeness of God. Fifth, this love is called impersonal to emphasize the fact that we don't have to have a personal connection or knowledge or intimacy with the person we love. And it's called unconditional because there's no positive condition that has to be met before we can love somebody. We're not saying, I'll love you if you do this or if you act a certain way. Sixth, this is a demonstration of grace. Love that is not based on grace is not love. So that brought us to the greatest example of love in John three sixteen and five eight, and then I'm going to set forth a uh, 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 more succinct definition, combining two or three sentences I've used to describe it. Love is a mental attitude toward others which desires the best for them according to the standards of God's integrity. So, love first of all, it's a mental attitude. It's not an emotion. Second, it desires the best for them, but not your best, not my best, not what I think they ought to do. You know, this is a difficult lesson parents learn at some point because they, they think they have their ideas of what's best for the kids. The kids have the idea of what's best for them, but God is the only one who knows what's best for everybody. And so the, the best is a value term and it's relative. But what's the absolute standard? It's God's character. It has to conform to his word. It has to conform to God's character of justice and righteousness. And so love is not a, a contrast or something that is uh, uh, somehow contradictory to God's love and justice, which is what small-minded liberals always come up with. Love is compatible with his righteousness and justice, and a love that is not is not love. It's self-seeking. So this is a definition. Love is a mental attitude towards others which desires the best for them according to the standards of God's integrity. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8, which describes for us love. So you might want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 because we're going to spend uh, most of the night there. Now, if you are reading your way through 1 Corinthians and you come to 1 Corinthians 13, You might wonder why this is here. It is sandwiched between 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which focuses on the distribution of spiritual gifts to every member of the body of Christ, and chapter 14, which describes the regulations for the practice of two spiritual gifts, that is prophecy and speaking in languages. And so it comes in the middle of that, and so we might ask why in the world has Paul put it here? And it really goes back to a verse that goes uh, prior to chapter chapter twelve, where where it goes back to a passage that talks about um, that that uh, arrogance that knowledge can puffs up. And it's not not a denial of the importance of knowledge. It is saying that knowledge, the wrong kind of knowledge and knowledge without love promotes arrogance. So I'll give you a little summary before we get into the details. In the first seven verses, Paul uh, is going to demonstrate the importance of love and the character qualities of love. And in this, he, is, he is states one of the most beautiful pieces of literature in all of the history of writing. And what he is saying, in essence, is that love is the sine qua non of the Christian life. Now, that's a Latin phrase. It's an important Latin phrase to learn in the study of the Bible and the study of theology because you will often find it used it means without which nothing that that's a literal translation sine is without qua is which and non is nothing in other words without this you don't ha- really have the christian life without love you don't have anything and that's what it means sine qua non is an indispensable something to whatever it is you're talking about. And so Paul is saying that love is the sine qua non of the Christian life in these first first three verses. We look at verse 1 in verse 1, which, which reads, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I would translate it, though I speak with the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. What he is doing is contrasting the um, love with languages. And then um, and what we see, he's going to contrast it with languages in verse 1. He's going to contrast it to the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge in verse 2, the understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge and then is going to uh, then contrast it to those who are uh, excessively uh, generous. And so what he is showing in all of this is that love supersedes these spiritual gifts and these uh, human uh, works and efforts that are so often emphasized by people. In verse 3, it focus, on, focus is on pseudo-spirituality. That's probably not evident to, to most of you, but that's what he's talking about is people who are willing to self-sacrifice. And so the two examples would be giving everything they own to feed the poor and even to the point of, of becoming a martyr for the faith. And these would, on the scale of human values, these rank high, but he's saying if it's not done out of love, it's 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 nothing. It's just religious, empty religious activity. So the fourth point is that love is the key here. It's a word that, as I pointed out in the introduction, is only used um, uh, rarely outside the New Testament, but in this chapter it's used ten times. That shows the emphasis here. The fifth point is it's foundational, uh, though the chapter appears to be an anacaluthon. Now, what's an anacaluthon? That's a fun word to say. An anacaluthon is running down a rabbit trail. You're talking about one topic, and all of a sudden you shift over to talking about uh, something else. So, here, I found this neat slide out there on the internet an anacaluthon. An example is, and then the deep rumble from the explosion began to shake the very bones of, no one had ever felt anything like it. See, that first statement, it doesn't get finished. It's interrupted, and it goes in another direction. So that's what an, an- anacoluthon is. It's a one example. It's a sentence whose two pieces do not fit together grammatically. And so it can also be somebody who's talking along and they come to something they say and that reminds them of something else that may be background or something else and all of a sudden they shift to that topic and then five minutes later they can't remember what they were talking about to begin with. Now I know that never happened to anybody here. That's called an anacalutha. Now you have a name for it. So it's running off down a sidetrack, but it's an important there are lots of Anakaluthans in the Scripture, and they are important because they they relate back to the particular topic. So Paul is going to talk about love because he's talking about spiritual gifts and their abuse. And before he talks about some of the abuse and regulations in chapter 14, he's going to talk about what's ultimately the most important The spiritual gifts uh, must operate out of a basis of love. Now, I think there's three stages in our understanding and development of biblical love. The foundation is grace orientation. If you can't begin to understand love by looking at the cross, then you're going to have a hard time being loved and loving others. Because you don't understand what real love is in that act of love where God, as Romans 5.8 says, demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were such wonderful, kind, joyful people, Christ died for us. That's not what it says. While we were yet sinners, and sinners in that context ought to be translated rebels, While we were rebelling against his authority, Christ died for us. While we were unattractive, while we did not conform to his righteousness and justice, while we were under a penalty of eternal death due to our rebelliousness, Christ died for us. That's what love is. It's loving. It is an act of doing what is best for the other person, even though... They may be hostile, they may be rebellious, they may be unattractive, they may be obnoxious. Once we come to understand grace at the cross, then we begin to understand God's love for us, and we reciprocate in our personal love for God, because God is the only one we know who is truly worthy of love, both personal love and um, and the kind of love we would have for a friend. Jesus referred to his disciples as his friends, his, his, based on the word of uh, uh, philos. So a it, it, personal love for God develops as a result of our understanding of the cross. And then that leads to a greater understanding of God's love for everyone and so when we think, boy, I sure hate that person, number one, we're hating someone who has the image of God in them, and that's, that's a sin. And 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 number two is we're hating somebody that God loved to the degree that he sent his only begotten son to die for them. And so we are to have that kind of love for all mankind that God has for all mankind. And we can't manufacture it on our own. Uh, we don't want to manufacture it on our own, for one thing, when it comes to some people. And otherwise, it is just a a product of our spiritual growth. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love. It's the first thing mentioned, and it's one fruit. So that's just the emphasis he's making. All of those are actually character qualities of the lord jesus christ they're different facets of the one thing that is produced in the life of the believer and the fruit of the spirit so it is uh necessary to walk by the spirit and it only is produced as we grow and mature as believers and it isn't produced by being active in your local church It's not produced by being active in some sort of missionary work. It's not not produced by just showing up and being at church and at Bible class. It is produced as you internalize what you learn and you walk by the Spirit, you confess sin, you read your Bible. Those are all means to an end. You can't come to love God if you don't know who he is, and you won't know who he is if you don't read his word. It's just that simple. And you may say, when you're reading your Bible, I just don't understand it. Well, guess what? Neither did I the first five or ten times I read through the Bible all the way through. But as you've heard me say before, it starts to make sense about the 11th, 12th, or 13th time. But you have to read it all the way through the first 11, 12, or 13 times before it starts making sense. And too many people give up. So you have to persevere. Six, the chapter fits the broader context, indicated back in 8.1, which says that knowledge gnosis makes arrogant, but love is edifies and so we're to be loving one another in chapters 8 through 10 um food is sacrificed to idols but i mean this is an important thing it related to uh activities that in and of themselves are neither moral nor immoral and everybody has to decide for themselves whether they're going to participate in something and the issue is is it going to make you sin Put you in a position where you ultimately won't be able to handle the temptation or the test, and so it puts you in a position of vulnerability, and you have to decide sometimes, well, others can do that, but I can't. Maybe I can do it when I'm more mature and stronger as a believer, but I can't do it now. And it's not legalism, it's just a matter of, of reality and facing your own own weaknesses. Uh, the food sacrifice to idols can also be a stumbling block to other people. Now, I always remember an article that was in, I think it was in Moody Monthly, may have been Christianity Today back in the early 70s, and it was called Baby Brother Grow Up. And then I read a book by Gary Friesen that dealt with the issue of knowing the will of God, decision-making in the will of God, and he made a point that I thought was was just a blinding flash of the obvious, and that is you've got three types of people. You've got a growing, maturing believer. You've got a weak brother who, for whatever reason, some of these things just cause them to, to, to sin. They take advantage of it. It's a weakness. They'll use it to rationalize sin or whatever. And then you have the, the legalist, the Pharisee. And 99% of the time, the people who are condemning certain activities and saying, well, you can't do this and you can't do that, you can't drink and you can't chew and you can't go with the girls to do, you can't do those things and be a believer, uh, that's a legalistic Pharisee. So if I'm going to sit down at a table and have a glass of wine, I might consider the fact that the person I'm with is an alcoholic and say, no, I'm not going to do that because I just don't want to do something that he may cause him to stumble because he's trying to move somewhere. Dr. Ryrie used to say, you can't stumble if you're not moving. Think about that. That's a deep thought. But you also have people who are, are just, they're just legalistic. And so you may sit there and say, well, I know this guy's really legalistic. I'm going to show him what grace is and I'm going to have a glass of wine I've done that once or twice to and it's interesting to see the reaction with some uh, people uh, It was real interesting one night I, I, I don't consider it poss- I don't much anymore but at one time I used to say I, I can't imagine eating a pizza or having uh, having Mexican food without a beer And so I went out with um, um, Morris Proctor. And Morris is a vegetarian. We went to a Mexican restaurant. Later, he told a mutual friend, he said, I was so impressed. We went out to a Mexican restaurant, and Robbie had a beer. And he didn't say, well, is this going to bother you? He didn't ask my permission. He just acted like it was the most normal thing in the world. He said, that's grace. That guy understands grace. I thought that was a real interesting, very nice compliment. Okay, so food sacrifice to idols also relates to how you deal with stuff when you're in work or you're in education or you're in the military or you're in any number of fields and you're being pressured uh, by the people in your periphery to conform to all this crazy wokeism or some other forms of... Of, um, uh, of the world view of those around us. And th- th- those things come in all kinds of subtle ways. Um, I was in a conversation today where I felt subtle pressure to agree with somebody who was saying, well, I think God created some things, but I still believe he used evolution. And And so, you know, you've been there, and you feel like what you need to do, yeah, 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 that's okay. And I thought, you know, there's subtle pressure there. And some people can handle that, and some people don't know how to handle that. And I'm not talking about subtle pressure. I'm talking about the overt pressure where you are being forced to advocate and to uh, promote policies in your employment that are based on a non-biblical worldview. And some people just, they, they can't ever figure out how to operate in a, in a situation like that and they're weaker brethren and they need to find some place else to, to function. Others are more mature and maybe they can figure out some ways to handle it. But it's, it's none of, some of these situations are, are very subtle. And so you have to be very creative in your thinking and spend some time with some mature believers in the process. Seventh point is, Chapter 13 skewers the Corinthian believers as much as the modern, self-absorbed, self-indulgent 21st century evangelical believer who's just overwhelmed by emotion, and they're biblically illiterate, theologically impoverished, and morally bankrupt. And that is about 98% of people who profess Christianity in our country today because they haven't figured out how not to be conformed to the world. And they've never really been exposed to good Bible teaching, and uh, but when they are, they don't recognize that's what Bible teaching ought to be. Now there are some people to do, but I have been a you know when I get together with other pastors, we have certain rules that we've all observed, and we'll start talking about some of these things. Rule number one: If somebody comes and visits church. And afterwards that person tells the pastor, this is the best thing I've, I've been looking for this kind of teaching for, for, for years. This is wonderful. I'll be, I I, I can't wait to get more. And so I'll, I'll turn to my wife and I'll say, we'll never see them again. I had one lady who came earlier in the summer. I'm going to be out of town next weekend, but I'll be back after that, and I haven't seen her since. She just went on and on about how great the message was. People who come and as you say amen and they're out the back door, they're back in the middle of the week. They're back the next week. They never make a comment to me other than they come and they stick with it. Uh, and that's that's like rule number one. Every time I explain that to a pastor, they say, that's Right? I've seen, I never thought about that, but you, that, that is exactly right. And so then, then there's another one and that is, oh, I've been, I've been wanting really good Bible teaching. I'm just not getting it where I, where I go. And they come and they'll, uh, sit in, sit in class and they'll hear good Bible teaching and you never see them again. Because what they identify as good Bible teaching isn't good Bible teaching. And I've pointed that out to pastors. They say, yeah, I hear that all the time. And they come and they sit in Bible class and they listen and then they never come back because it, it I don't know what they're looking for, but it really isn't good Bible teaching. So that's, that's a problem. And they don't under, they want, they want acceptance. They, their approbation lust is where they want people to, to make over them and to talk to them. They're looking for something they're missing in their life, but it isn't Bible teaching. And they're missing that. Chapter 13 puts Christian service in proper perspective. We serve the Lord. We don't serve one another. We don't teach in Sunday school. We don't teach in prep school. We don't go to the mission field because we want acceptance and because it's a great thing to do. I was talking with somebody this this week, and I mentioned two or three things that had happened to me one morning. And I um, said... Made a comment, so you really have a rough time. I said, well, you know, when you're a pastor, the moment you enter the pastorate, you have a big target that Satan puts on your back. And, and they, they thought about that and say, yeah, you're right. I wonder how many pastors realize that when they go in, when they want to go in the pulpit, that that's what they're doing is they want to just get into the, uh, center of the angelic revolt. So it's all about, And that's something that we grow. That's why Paul prays, and we should pray, that love abounds, because it doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't happen just by sitting and passively hearing somebody teach the Word. There's got to be internalization and and application. So this is how it starts. You've got the first three verses in chapter 13, where what Paul is doing is introducing the topic by showing the indispensability of biblical love. It's the sine qua non. Now let's look at a couple of things. First of all, he's going to give three sets of examples. It all begins with an if clause. The if in Greek is a third class condition. A couple of weeks ago i made a comment in bible and a sunday morning at church about participles and how you understand the relation of a participle to a main verb which i learned in teen class bible class when i was probably 16 years old i also learned about the four conditional clauses that are in um, in greek and three of them are predominant in the new testament there's maybe one or two examples of the fourth one but um there's if, the first-class condition, if, and it's assumed that the condition is true. It may not be, but it's assumed to be true. The second one is if, and the condition is assumed to not be true. For example, uh, of the first-class condition, Satan sends to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. He's not saying if, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Satan knows he is. It's a first-class condition. And then uh, the second class condition is if and you're not, it's not the uh, uh, a true statement. And then the third is the one we're most frequently used to, and that is um, the I, it, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But according to the grammar, it's a little more complicated than that. There are three basic meanings in a third class condition. First of all, it can be understood as a logical connection that if A is true then B follows. And so this is just presenting a general condition. Um, the second one is what we have in 1 Corinthians thirteen one to three, and that it's presenting a hypothetical situation. It's not presenting something that's factual, it's presenting something that is hypothetical. And then it's, it's maybe not, but it's more probable. It's, it's more like what we think of as if and maybe it's not true, but it probably is. So when we look at that, each one of these begins with this hypothetical situation. If I speak with the tongues or the languages of men and of angels. Now when you talk to some people who believe that the Tongues gifts and the sign gifts have continued. They'll say, "Oh, but it's an angelic language. I don't know what I what I say when I pray." Well, the question is, um, because they'll make the claim that if I pray in tongues, I get the right, I get answers. My prayers are answered more than if I don't. Really? Well, do you understand what you're praying in tongues? No. Well, how do you know you're Prayers are getting answered if you don't understand what you're praying for. Uh, There's no basis in Scripture. Tell me one place in Scripture where an angel speaks in an angelic language. It's not there. They always speak in human languages. So there may be an angelic language, but it's an argument from silence. There's no evidence anywhere that there is a distinct angelic language. Uh, he, he, and what Paul is saying, he's, in his, in the first part of the conditions, which is called the prodesis, pro, first, he is basically setting up in a, in, in an exaggerated sense. You see this in the second verse, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, he doesn't say some mysteries, all mysteries, every single one of them. And all knowledge see he's being hyperbolic he is he's going to the most extreme example. If I were Superman and I was invincible and didn't have love, see that's what he's doing there, there no Superman exists, but you're just using it as a, an exaggeration to express the point. so he's saying if in the in the second. He's using two other sign gifts, prophecy and uh, knowledge and understanding all mysteries. And he says, if I had all understood all mysteries and all knowledge and I had all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And then the third verse, he's making the same thing. If I donate all my goods, I'm not going to keep anything back, not even my underwear. I'm giving everything away. If I donate all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned. Now, there's a textual variant there. And if you have an NASB, uh, NIV, ESV, HCSB, any of those that are based on the UBS text, then it's going to say, uh, if I um, uh, give uh, give uh, give my body to boast, something like that. Uh, and I'll show you what the issue is there in just a minute. Uh, but it is in the uh, majority text reading, which is uh, widespread and uh, m- more uh, uh, a more widely attested reading, it means to be burned. He's giving himself up to martyrdom. But have not love, it profits me nothing. So, in this first verse, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, it's verbal expression. Out loud, and he's using the 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 word glosa, and it means language. It's always translated tongues. Tongues is sort of a way to avoid some of the issues, but it doesn't. It's languages, and, and uh, there was a linguist back in the 60s, early 70s, named William Samarin, who wrote actually wrote a book called uh, uh, The Tongues of Men and of Angels, and he was uh, charismatic, Pentecostal. And he did extensive research on, with uh, uh, tape recordings uh, or some other kind of recording of, uh, of various uh, languages all over the world. And without knowing the language, a linguist can break it down into organized structures. Every language has an organized structure. And they can spot the structures even if they don't know the vocabulary or just exactly what the what the language is. And he concluded that... Um, When he compared that with the recordings of people who were, quote, speaking in tongues, unquote... He could find no evidence of those who spoke in tongues that it resembled any kind of language. It was just, he could tell it was just gibberish. It had no order, it had no discernible structure or anything. People say, well, it's an angelic language. No, you can't, you know, it's always going to have structure and order because language was created by the God of order order and structure. Um, So... um, you have this, this whole idea of tongues uh, ex- was expressed a lot of times in pagan religions, especially the mystery religions. They're referred to in verse 2, but one of the most uh, famous uh, places in the ancient world was a place just northeast or northwest across the Isthmus from Corinth That was called Delphi. And there was a priestess there, and she had a temple, and she had a, a room back in the back. And the thought is that there was some sort of gases that were coming up through this hole in the ground, and she would sniff the gases sort of like eating mushrooms, and she would have hallucinations and other things. And she spoke in ecstatic utterances. And so the Corinthians were confusing those kinds of ecstatic utterances with the biblical gift of tongues and in fact um, but and she made these prophecies and so uh, the legend of Criesus is that he was the wealthiest king uh, in the uh, a- ancient world. He was the king of Lydia, which was over across on um, in in ancient what is now modern turkey and and he um, or oh, was trying to decide whether he should go to war against the Persians. And so he sent a messenger to the oracle at Delphi, and he got a response. And this is usually what you get from people you think can tell fortunes and whatever. They give you an ambiguous response, and you can read into it whatever you think. And the oracle replied by saying that if Creusus made war on the Persians, he would destroy a mighty empire. And he took that to mean that he would defeat the Persians, but the mighty empire he destroyed was his own. Thomas Hobbes, who was an Enlightenment philosopher, a rationalist, said, and for incoherent speech it was amongst the Gentiles taken for one sort of prophecies, referring to the Oracle of Delphi. That this incoherent speech was a kind of prophecy, because the prophets of their oracles, intoxicated with the spirit or vapor from the cave of the Pythian oracle at Delphi, she had a, a, a puthanas spirit. Now, where does the word puthanas come from? What other word comes from puthanos? See, the u is often transliterated as a y. P y t h o n. What does that spell? What is that? It's a snake. It's a serpent. So the Pythian oracle at Delph- Delphi were for a time really mad and spake like madmen, of whose loose words a sense might be made to fit any event in such sort as all bodies are said to be made of prime material. Okay, so there you have just a couple of insights into what was going on in the ancient world. And Paul says if you speak with these kind of language or later if you have prophecies, then I don't have, lo- and I don't have love, I'm nothing. He says here I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And it's not should not be translated I have become, but I would have become, because he's setting up a hypothetical. If I had done this, I would have become nothing. And the sounding brass is an acoustic it's, it's like little castanets, that kind of a thing, except they were made of brass. And they were used by the priests and priestesses in the pagan religions to get the attention of the gods and goddesses. And uh, so that's he's using language that relates to pagan worship. And so he's saying, if you don't have love, and even if you can do all these other things, you're, you're just like those tinkering noise makers that they use to get the attention of the gods in the, in the temples. Then in verse two, he says, "And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I 'm nothing." So you can see, again, the exaggeration. Nobody has all mysteries, all knowledge, and all faith. So it's, again, just just hypothetical exaggeration. And he's basically making the point, doesn't matter what your talents are, what your gifts are, what your abilities are, how much money you have, how beautiful you are, how successful you are. If you don't have love, you're nothing. Now, the application there is for us to think about all the things that we've hoped to achieve in life. And if you achieve all of those things and don't have biblical love, you're nothing. You haven't. You may look good and have lots of awards, lots of things hanging on the wall, lots of trophies in your trophy room. But when it comes to the trophies that matter, you're going to have nothing. Then we come to the third example. Uh, it gets even more extreme. Though I give all of my goods, everything I own, to feed the poor so that I'm left with nothing. And though I give my body to be burned, I'm willing to be martyred and die for my cause, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So love is that which is the distinctive trait of the church-age believer, and it is the sine qua non of the spiritual life. And we get it because uh, we walk by the Spirit. It, it, it's not something that God just goes poof, you've got it. It, it. It's something that grows over time. So this is, this is the idea here. He's giving up his goods, giving up his body. Oh, back to the variant on bur, uh, burning. See, the UBS text, oh I don't have my phone pointer, the UBS text is the first example. Uh, that's what you have in the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, a, Home and Christian type, so all those others, everything but the King James and New King James reads, I might boast. See, I have a green letter in the middle. It's the Greek letter key. But all the other letters are the same. In the second example, it's kalthasimai, which is the word that is used in the majority of manuscripts, and there's only a one letter difference. And you can see the, and especially, well, with using this kind of typeface, you say, well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of similarity. But if you look at the way some of these letters were handwritten by the scribes, it'd be real easy to, uh, misidentify the key for the theta. And so that would explain how, uh, how it came up. So the better, the, the, the majority of manuscripts has Kalthasemai. And it, Paul just says all through here, profits me nothing. It's of no value, no significance. Now in the next few verses, we get into the characteristics. There's no definition of love. There's descriptions. Greater love hath no man than the one who gives his life for another. Uh, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So love is, first of all, long-suffering. This is a Greek word, thumeo, which means patience, but, it, but macro is long. You know, macro, we talk about macros when we do different things. Macro is something big. Micro is something small. So, And thumeo is anger, like where we get a word like uh, thermos, something hot, thermal. Um, anger is related to that. So it's long on anger. Somebody who take, has a lot of patience and doesn't get angry. They're able to be tranquil and calm when everything around them is flying off into chaos. Has the idea of enduring provocation without complaint. So the idea here is love suffers long. It doesn't seek revenge, retribution, or justification when wrong. And that's just the opposite of the Greek idea. The Greek idea was it's all about taking care of me and getting and if somebody harms me or uh, does something to offend me, then I need to get back at them. And so I'm going to go around and whine about being offended all the time. Now, that I, what, does anybody in this our culture whine all the time? Well, those that whine all the time about being offended all the time are at the opposite end of the spectrum from love. Love is kind. It is. It shows and it's a it, it's related to moral goodness, so there's an integrity to the kindness. It's not just sort of a sentimental kindness, but it's indi- it's indicating something that is a positive reaching out to help someone like the Samaritan to the Jew who was mugged on the way to the to jericho it's He's doing going the extra mile to help. Love does not envy. Now, the first two are positive. It's long-suffering and it's kind. And now it's defined in terms of negatives. It doesn't envy. This is the word zelao for for zealous or jealous. Now, this is a word that can have negative or positive connotation. So you have to look at the context. And so it has this idea, love does not envy. It's not seeking what somebody else has. It, It is comfortable with what it has on itself. So it's not motivated by a, 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 a jealousy. Uh, love does not parade itself. It doesn't brag. Literally, it's translated in some of the modern translations more correctly. It, it doesn't brag about its accomplishments. Um, it doesn't speak emptily of what it does, and it is not puffed, puffed up, Fusia'o, and which means to be puffed up or conceited on the basis of, of knowledge, where you, you, they strut around because of what they know, they always have to one up people because they know more than everybody else knows that 's the opposite of love. It does behave rudely. see that's related to the conceited person acts rudely, and it, this is again a ne- negative, and it has the idea of disgracing or shaming somebody. So you're not going to make fun of somebody. You're not going to ridicule somebody. You're not going to embarrass them because of the way you're putting them down. And you're not going to behave in a rude manner. Uh, next, it does not seek its own. It's not self-absorbed. It's not focused on what it deserves and what it sh- that person should get. And it does not think evil. It's not provoked. That's the first word. It's not easily angered or upset. And the last word is it thinks uh, thinks no evil. It does not think in terms of mental attitude sins. In 1 Corinthians 13:6, let me back up here. 13:6. It does not rejoice in iniquity. Now the word over here on the top is the word for rejoice. Don't have a pointer. Cairo, it means love does not go along with evil or overlook evil, which is sin. So it's not going to justify sin, it's not going to uh, celebrate sin, and because it's based on integrity, it's consistent with the righteousness of God. A love without integrity is just not love. And the word for iniquity is the word adikia. Dikia is a word for righteousness, sune, dikiao. That's the word for righteousness, that which is just. The A at the beginning is the Greek uh, alpha privative. It's the negative. It's like the English U-N. So it's unrighteousness. Uh, it doesn't rejoice in what is unrighteous. And But in contrast, the positive is it rejoices in truth, in truth or truthfulness or faithfulness. In other words, it rejoices in integrity. Love has integrity. A love that does not have integrity is just self-serving. And then in verse 7, it says it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, that word for bearing all things isn't the same word that's used over in Ephesians uh, 4 about putting up with one another in love. Here it has the idea of covering over to protect somebody. In other words, you're not going to be talking about somebody else's flaws and failures. You're not going to get in prayer meeting and talk about your spouse's problems. That happens in some churches. I don't think it ever happens here. You've been trained too well. But that's what happens in a lot of prayer meetings. They use that as a way to talk about the flaw, and and love covers it up, not in the sense that it is justifying, but in the sense that it wants what's best for, for the person, and you don't want to be airing their dirty laundry in public. And it's, you're not out to embarrass them and tell stories on them that embarrass them. So it, it wants to improve the situation and not embarrass or put down someone else. And it's, I can't find a better word to sum up the others. It's optimistic about people. It's not, it's not that it's naive and believes all things in a naive sort of way but in an optimistic sort of way you're hopeful that that the person is doing well and doing the right thing and going forward and, and and that's true for the kid for a lot of kids but a lot of parents are just naively optimistic that's not what this is talking about it is a an optimism you're you're you're, you're positive about the other person's growth doesn't mean you're blind to their faults and flaws and endures all things here has more of the idea of of uh, putting up with uh, the other person. We all do that. If you've ever been married or you ever had kids or you've ever had parents or you've had anybody in a close relationship, you know that sometimes you just get at odds with each other and, and you have to put up with each other because you've made a decision to love them. And so that's necessary. That's how you, you, you survive. Love never fails. That's the conclusion. It's the first statement in 1 Corinthians thirteen eight. The last statement is uh, what will fail, which is prophecies of spiritual gifts and tongues and knowledge, etc. Those will all fail. But love never fails. And that ends the first eight verses and it ends at the very end when it says, Now abide in this church age what abide are faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So the whole Chapter, all 13 verses are focusing on the significance of love. Okay, so we are going to look at love here in this last diagram. I'm going to put all these different characteristics up here. And you have the positive ones steadfast and kind, and rejoicing and integrity. Those are positive, and the negatives are the others. And these define the boundaries of what love is. And if all of those things are true about you, the way you relate to someone, then that's love. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has nothing to even do with if you like the person. It has to do with with if you care about what's best for them. All right, we'll come back at that again, and uh, we're going to look at some other things related to love at the cross, but we're out of time tonight, so when I get back from Africa, we'll we'll uh, do a little review again and go forward. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to learn what true biblical love, the fruit of the Spirit, is all about, what it should look like in our lives, uh, that it is about edifying, it is about... Uh, doing that which is best in relation to uh, your character and in a way that conforms to your character. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we think about these things and reflect upon them, that we might pray as part of our daily prayer that love may abound more and more in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.